If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheiks are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or out a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheiks bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. This is the World According to Zig podcast for October 13th, 2019. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of the show. We can still get the news of the day from a conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. Our website is www.freespeechbroadcasting.com. That is where you can find all the past episodes of the World According to Zig podcast, as well as the other podcast I do, which is the Individual One podcast on all news related to Donald Trump, which I urge you to check out as we've done another episode, episode number 62 on this date of October 13, 2019. As is always the case when we do a World According to Zig podcast, there's lots to get to. Matt Lauer called me this morning. I can't tell you everything that, or hardly anything that Matt <laughs> told me, uh, but it was fascinating. And I'll get to that a little bit later on as to why he called. Uh, and it's at least somewhat related to our, our first topic, which is the aftermath of the Malcolm Gladwell best-selling book, Talking to Strangers, in which there is a chapter about the Penn State Joe Paterno Jerry Sandusky case, which extensively cites my work on the case, which you can find at framingpaterno.com. And this week, uh, there were a couple developments. The, the major development in, in the reaction to the Malcolm Gladwell book is that there were two, two different uh, Internet posts by academics who have responded to the Gladwell book under the, uh, the theme that Gladwell was not totally forthcoming about his true beliefs about the case that basically he was afraid to say that Jerry Sandusky is innocent because he knew that that would be toxic for his brand new book and that it would not be a bestseller and that that's all the book would be about if he said that Jerry Sandusky was innocent. Instead, he says, oh, the case is shrouded in doubt and I just don't know what the heck the truth there is. It's just a rabbit hole. If you want to go down that rabbit hole, go with John Ziegler and find out what happens next. That's a pretty good paraphrase of what, what Gladwell says in the book and in the notes on the book, within the book. Uh, one of the two men who wrote an internet post about this is a guy by the name of Fred Cruz, and he is a, currently a professor emeritus at Cal Berkeley, and he's also the author of numerous books, and he's a guy um, that I've been in some contact with for a while. He's written about this case on a couple of different occasions, uh, but this week what he wrote is important, one, for the substance, and two, 
for how and why he was forced to self-publish it. And uh, he joins us now. Fred Cruz, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, John. Fred, before we get into uh, your involvement in the Penn State Paterno Sandusky story, give us a little sense about your rather uh, extensive career and who you are. Okay, well, it's very extensive because I'm 86 years old. <laughs> <laughs> I taught English and American literature at the University of California, Berkeley for 36 years, but I've been retired for a very long time after that. I had some concern with Freud and psychoanalysis early in my career, and by 1980 I had decided that all of this was just complete nonsense. And since then I've written several books and lots of articles about Freud and psychoanalysis, and particularly his central concept, which is of course repression and repressed memory, which has no scientific support whatsoever. In the 1990s, I began writing about the recovered memory movement, which, which dated from the early 80s and really largely flamed out during the, during the 90s, uh, partly because a lot of good people, uh, educated judges and lawyers and journalists and the American public, that the doctrine of repressed memory simply has no basis. Um, this is extremely important for court cases because until then, and during the 80s and 90s, people could get convicted of crimes on the basis of testimony that a therapist had brought back a memory of childhood abuse by a certain party, and there'd be no other evidence whatsoever, but a conviction would ensue. Um, that has been altered in the law since then. But not everybody, including the Sandusky jurors, has gotten the point. So um, in 1993, in the New York Review of Books, I reviewed several uh, books about recovered memory, and one of them was Mark Pendergrass' um, Victims of Memory. It's a wonderful book. And Mark and I became friends after that. Uh, after the Sandusky uh, verdict in 2012, a couple of years after, Mark realized he was tipped off that there was a recovered memory aspect to the case, and he began writing his book. He asked me um, to look at the proofs and to endorse the book, but like everybody else in America, I thought this was a crazy idea. That the case was completely closed, and, um, you know, frankly, like everybody else, I was afraid to be associated with the case. But when the book came out, I read it and was overwhelmed with uh, the logic of the argument. It seemed to me that Mark took care of every major question that you could ask about the Sandusky case. And so I became an advocate of that book. Um, about a year and a half ago, I wrote an article on the um, Skeptic Magazine website about the case, uh, pretty much promoting Mark's book. And then, of course, more recently, very recently, there's the Gladwell business, which you are very well aware of. And I just self-published an article on Medium uh, about Gladwell's relationship to the evidence for the Sandusky case. 
Wow. Okay. So that was that's a lot. You basically just did the whole interview right there. Uh, <laughs> th th thanks for joining us, Fred. Uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, so let's go back. Um, yeah. So, uh, by the way, the, the book you referenced by Mark Pendergrast is The Most Hated Man in America. Mark has been on this podcast before. There's a chapter about me in that book, uh, for better or for worse. And, and so you had, had this relationship with Pendergrast. And so when the story first broke in 2011, 2012, there, there were no alarm bells going off for Fred Cruz as far as this could be an injustice, was there? Absolutely none. And, and why was that? Just because you just bought into what the media was saying? Well, the media just had an overwhelming, unanimous impact on just about everybody. I mean, even, even you, John, were not uh, uh, at all convinced that Sandusky was innocent. You, you had realized at the time that a great injustice was being done to Joe Paterno. But you had to study things for a while, unless I'm greatly mistaken, no, that's uh, right. You're 100% you're right. I mean, I presumed yeah. that he was guilty. I had a few questions uh, before anybody else did, but I, right. I, I was willing to accept his guilt for the sake of argument. And, uh, and, it was, it was, and frankly, it wasn't until uh, 2014 when uh, I went on the Today Show with uh, Dottie Sandusky with, uh, in an interview with Matt Lauer and officially declared my belief that, uh, that Jerry Sandusky was innocent. But that was after an extensive investigation right. where I was basically trying to prove Jerry Sandusky guilty. And right. and just could not do it. So anyway, go, go back to you. So so you're not you're not feeling any alarm bells. You're buying totally that the, the media can't possibly be this wrong, right? I mean that that's your basically your your position when the story breaks. Yeah, I wouldn't even call it a position. You're just sitting there watching your TV, and this comes on, and you say, "Yes, yeah, sure." You don't think about it. Mm -hmm. So and and so then when when Mark approaches you that he's going to do this book, you think he's crazy. Yes. I mean, Mark is a very idealistic guy. I have great admiration for him. He's totally honest, and he's a very good researcher. But I thought, well, everybody makes mistakes. He's, gonna, he's going to kill his own career with this, and, and he's, it's going to taint anybody who associates himself with it. So I didn't have any kind of um, uh, guts, you know, at the time to... to uh, Opposed the consensus. It was only when I sat down and read the book, you know, it's 391 pages, that I just said at every point, he's got this covered. He understands the case. And what was so compelling uh, uh, to you about Mark's argument? Okay. Every aspect of it was compelling, but what the book gives you, among other things, is a sense of how this whole thing unfolded. Um, the Obviously, the shower boy episode is crucial, and yet, as we know, Sandusky was not guilty on the charge of of, uh, of raping the shower boy. Um, so what happened? Well, people were after Sandusky for several years. They were working over uh, Aaron Fisher. He was not a good witness. They tried a couple of grand juries with him. They were going nowhere. And then they heard about McQueary and the shower incident from 2001, or maybe a little earlier. <laughs> and they manipulated McQueary with false stories about how they had already rounded up boys who had confessed 
of their abuse by Sandusky, and having manipulated McQuery and getting McQuery to change his story to make it look as if the the shower rape actually occurred, they then used McQuery to influence impressionable and maybe not altogether honest boys, young men, to say that they'd been molested. So what you have is two stages of phony influence resulting in a, a railroading of a man. And and that's just the beginning of it. I mean, you've just articulated very well that, that basically this case was built on two pillars, the pillar of Mike McQuarrie and the pillar of Aaron Fisher. Right. And when the story breaks in November 2011 nationwide, the media tells us that these two pillars are made of steel. And, right. and instead, what we've learned is those were made of sand at, at best. Right. And, and then once the hysteria starts, and this is the part that to me is the most important for people to understand, because it's so hard for people to grasp the magnitude of, of this injustice. I mean, how could this possibly happen? And frankly, it's not that difficult to comprehend once you understand the timeline, because in the panic that ensues, and it really is a moral panic, that ensues unprecedented. I mean, the things that happened in that first week of November of 2011, in retrospect, are just ridiculous. I mean, I mean, right. there, there's there's the firing of Joe Paterno, which to people who are not familiar with Pennsylvania may not fully understand what that did to the psyche of of the entire right. state. I mean, it was like, it was literally like there is no Santa Claus. You're telling an entire state there is no Santa Claus. Sorry, for the last 61 years, we've been lying to you. Uh, everything, right. everything you think you know is wrong. And, right. uh, and, and so when Penn State fires Joe Paterno in a panic, as well as Graham Spanier, the very well-respected president of Penn State, that's a guilty plea for all intents and purposes. They're 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 pleading guilty on behalf of Jerry Sandusky. That's right. And and so everything flows from there. And then you know, how in the world can you possibly get a fair trial seven months later in the same community that's being accused of having enabled the crime? That's right. <laughs> so so I mean you have a jury that is emotionally invested in a guilty verdict because they want to show the rest of the world, hey, we're not in favor of child molesters. We're, in fact, we're very tough on child molesters. Look at our pitchforks. So, yeah, well, yeah, as you said in the article that did not get published in Newsweek, these people had to go home to their communities, and were they going to say, oh, yeah, we let them go? It's, it's impossible. Right. And so, okay, so... So Mark's book changes your mind based largely on this concept of, of repressed memories and, and the fact that Mark got an interview with victim number seven where he acknowledged uh, that he had engaged in, in repressed memory therapy, which, uh, you know, for people who are not that familiar, tell, tell us why, in your view, that's not a credible source of, of, uh, of a memory. Well... Freud's basic idea about repression was that the more traumatic an incident is, the more likely it is that you won't be able to remember it. Um, it gets pressed down into your unconscious because you, you simply cannot deal with it. But it stays there in a kind of pristine form, and 10 or 20 or even 30 years later, 
a well-trained psychotherapist can draw it out from your unconscious, and there it is, just as good as new, and it's evidence of what happened to you way back then. You know, and at first thought, at first for I thought it was evidence of actual sexual abuse. Later, he changed his mind and made it really weird and said it's evidence of your desire to have incestuous relations with a parent of yours, which, you know, was even crazier. But in both versions, it's just completely wrong. We now know that the more traumatic an incident is, unless it causes brain injury, the easier it is to remember, the harder it is to forget. We simply we simply don't repress traumatic things, and that's all there is to it. So now you have this this young man and various others, quite a few others, um, mostly outside the trial, uh, who are getting enormous settlements from Penn State, who are claiming that they hadn't remembered their abuse of Sandusky, and, and indeed they had repressed it so thoroughly that they thought Sandusky was a really nice fellow and became a good friend of theirs, and he went to their weddings and their graduation and so on and so on. But, oh yeah, now that the repressed memory has been retrieved, we realize that the person was kind of in a fog for all those years, and now the truth comes out. Um, th- this just could not be more unscientific, and it could not be more contrary to the judicial system. Right, because of course, if if we accept this, then we'll accept anything. I mean, that's right. I mean, I mean, and by the way, I mean, even if you theoretically accept that this is this is possible which you don't and i don't but let's just pretend just for the sake of argument that you could you could theoretically uh, have this happen in your memory if we're going to accept that in the judicial process then we might as well just uh, just convict everybody because there's no way to defend yourself because now you're saying i don't need to say anything for years and then i can just make it up uh, years later when it's in my self-interest to do so, and in this case, there's millions of dollars on the table, because right. because I can just claim it was repressed memory, and, and and so even if it was somehow real, which again it's not, you can't work a judicial system that way. And for the record, my understanding is that in in most states, you can't even raise this as as an as as a, as a uh, an issue in a in a court case. Is that right? That's absolutely right. Okay. So um, now I, I want to get to the timeline of your involvement here and your writing the two articles that you have written, including one that came out this week. But since you, you, we've raised this issue of repressed memory, I, I might as well address it now. Uh, yeah. I, I, I think Mark has done great work and, um, and you know, I, I think he has definitely moved the ball down the field, especially within the, the, uh, the th- psychology community. Uh, right. There's no question that uh, a lot of people are convinced within that community by Mark Pendergrass that Jerry Sandusky is innocent. However, as I have told Mark, both privately and publicly, uh, I, I don't believe that, that his theory of the case is actually true. Uh, I, I believe that Mark is, as you, you called him, idealistic. I think Mark uh, is a little naive. 
he was naive about how his book would be received. He was naive about the ability to publish his book. Uh, he um, and I kept telling him that, and I think I turned out to be right, um, much more so than I was wrong. Uh, but you know, Mark, uh, while he has interviewed victim number seven, and uh, I think he even met with Matt Sandusky uh, at one point. Uh, but I thought I thought he did so in in, in ways that were quite naive. Uh, the reality is that for the most part, Mark has been looking at this case from from thirty thousand feet, if you will, and uh, and I've actually been in Lock Haven, Pennsylvania, <laughs> uh, yeah. where the epicenter of this thing is, and it's my view that the repressed memory therapy or PTSD, as it has now become. Uh, is essentially just an excuse. Uh, the this right. is this is the way that grown men figured out was the get out of jail free card for a story that didn't make sense or for why they never told anybody about this sooner. Uh, and right. I, I'm curious what you make of of my theory as opposed to the way Mark looks at this case. I think that the two points of view are not completely far apart. Um, I do believe that the repressed memory aspect of this case was part of a scam um, uh, created by the Attorney General's office. That is to say, they realized that they had to work these young men over to to uh, get the proper stories out of them, and they sent them to recovered memory therapists. They sent them to Mike Gillum. They sent them to, to Cindy McNabb. Uh, so I think that was totally cynical. But now the question is, did these young men sincerely acquire a belief that they had repressed a memory of having been abused by Sandusky? I don't think we can answer the question with a simple yes or no. But you have millions of dollars being dangled in front of these people as a kind of reward for remembering. Uh you know, you can look at it with total cynicism and say, well, that's just crap. Uh, they're using it as an excuse. But you can also say, well, here's human nature. Here's an authority figure, a psychotherapist with a lot of training who's telling me that I've forgotten all this stuff. And by the way, if I remember it, there's a pot of gold at the end. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think people tend not to think clearly about their own motives. What we have here is possibly a combination of motives, but they both they both uh, trend in the same direction. And I think that's fair. And, and look, I, I, I'm not. Uh, this just doesn't matter to me about who's right and who's wrong. I really don't uh, have an investment in that. But I th I think that the more cynical point of view is important here because one. Uh, it eliminates the need to prove that every single one of these guys was I involved in some sort of repressed memory therapy. Um, oh, I don't even think that Mark says that. I mean, okay. obviously there are people like Sebastian Payton who... Which is victim uh, number nine, for people who don't know. Yeah, who came in without any prior history of uh, admiring uh, Sandusky, if I'm correct, and and just went in for the money in the most obvious way. Well, he and he ended up getting paid uh, I think 20 million dollars. 20 million. I mean, uh, I mean this and this is a guy who was not even part of the investigation until after Joe Paterno was fired and the money is on the table. I mean, right. it's just preposterous to me. To me, even if Jerry if Jerry Sandusky was guilty as hell, which 
I, I know he was not. But if he was, to me, I still would have grave concerns about anybody who came forward after Paterno's firing because, one, you know the money's on the table at that point and the media right. firestorm is there. But also, people don't understand nationally. They don't understand that locally this was already a known story for uh, seven months to that point because Sarah Ganim had had written about the grand jury investigation in the local paper. Now, the the national media didn't pick it up because no one remembered Jerry Sandusky. Uh, No one cared. But uh, locally, there was seven months, not just of media coverage, but also of investigators asking anybody who would possibly know anyone who might have been uh, molested by Jerry Sandusky. So if you don't come forward by that point, I'm sorry, you're not credible, but his lawyers, his lawyers, in my opinion, having seen the the settlement documents, uh, his lawyers knew the magic words here. Uh, and, And it had much more to do with the politics of this than him having been abused by Jerry Sandusky, by the way, in a way that is totally different than all the other trial accusations and is completely inconsistent with uh, simply the the um, his basement, uh, which you can hear everything that happens from his basement anywhere in the house, Uh, not to mention Jerry Sandusky's own medical issues at the time. So um, so Sebastian Payton is lying. I mean, and right. uh, 100%, 100% lying, and he got paid $20 million, or his, his attorneys right. uh, took whatever but that... I mean, to be fair to Mark Pendergrass, I think he realizes that, and that's it's really in his book. He's, right. he's not saying that Payton uh, had a recovered memory. And, and for the record, you mentioned the names of two therapists, uh, Mike Gillum and, and Cynthia McNabb, and yeah. these are two people who are critical to the case. Uh, Mike Gillum was the, the therapist for Aaron Fisher, victim number one, who you've referred to, the only right. victim in the case for two years. And he was also, and this is important, he was also, by the time the trial came around, he was also the therapist for victim number four. And victim number four was, was the new star for the prosecution. And, and that, by the way, <laughs> it's funny. Uh, I don't know if we've ever talked about this, Fred, but one of the funniest things about this case is that it has always been the prosecution side and what they have said that convinced me of Jerry's innocence. Uh, And what I mean by that is Aaron Fisher's book was a huge part of me becoming convinced that Jerry was innocent, as well as the only interview that the two prosecutors in the case, uh, Frank Fina and Joe McGettigan, gave to any major media outlet. They, they spoke to HBO's Armin Katayan, a, a reporter who I do not trust at all. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and in that interview, it's fascinating. Uh, and this, rose, this, this raised huge alarm bells to me. They said to Armin Katayan that the star witness of their case was victim number four. And I'm like, that's not possible you can't uh-huh. you cannot have if in a case like this your first victim must be your star because if the first victim is not bulletproof then everything yeah. else that comes after it is inherently suspect but they were essentially throwing Aaron under the bus saying yeah. it, they didn't even mention him because he has huge problems in his in his in his, right, in his story his criminal record well, by the way, as we speak, as we speak, uh, last week Aaron Fisher was arrested for violating uh, his protection from abuse uh, 
that had been issued on behalf of his estranged wife uh, because he put out an Instagram uh, post threatening her. And it is my understanding that, and I don't know if he was arrested or not, but I know that the police were called on him just two days ago because he's been trying to have uh, uh, sex with underage girls in a Dunkin' Donuts in, 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 in Lock Haven. <laughs> I mean, this is a bad dude who, yeah. is, who is a pathological liar who was manipulated by his mother who's a welfare queen. There was, I mean, to, yeah. me, to me, there's, there's nothing repressed memory about this this is just a flat-out scam and that you have so you have mike gillum being the therapist for both of them and then right. and then you have cynthia mcnab who was the therapist for nine sandusky accusers including i think at least three uh trial accusers as well as the boy in the shower alan myers who did not testify at trial as well as the uh, fake accuser that that ran a sting operation on her and the lawyer she works with, Andrew Shubin, for three years, which we recorded hundreds right. of hours of audio tape on. Uh, right. and, and so I, to me, I, I am of the belief, Fred, that one of the things that uh, this case exposes is that therapists are, whether by design or maybe out of their own naivete or their investment in everyone being abused, Therapists themselves are not nearly as trustworthy as I presume them to be. Is that a fair assessment? Oh, absolutely. But I would throw in social workers, too. I mean, these, these Freudian concepts are no longer current in respectable psychology departments of colleges and universities. But the social workers and the psychotherapists have not gotten the message. And they're still operating on the same assumptions they did in the 1980s and 90s. And this has a lot, a lot to do with this case, because the early accusations against Sandusky were just uh, not confirmed in any way, because the, the boys just said, no, this didn't happen. But the social workers and the psychologists said, oh, well, that can't be true. He has the profile of an abuser by our standards. And so... We're going to extract these. We're going to extract the true story from these from these kids. Well, to your to your point, and I, I'm pretty sure you know this. Aaron Fisher's caseworker, Jessica Dunham, I think is her name, uh, was at the time I think about a 23, 24 year old woman uh, who was quoted in the Philadelphia Inquirer when after the story broke that she knew. This is a close paraphrase that she knew Jerry Sandusky was guilty when he told her he was innocent. Yeah, and that's the logic. That's the logic that you find in the textbooks on recovered memory from the '80s. Absolutely, denial is a f affirmation. Well, and that, and that, by the way, comes straight out of Freud. I mean, this—that's—that's that's the Salem witch trial on steroids. Yeah. I, I mean, and, and and I also believe, and I, I don't know what your feelings are on this, but I find it interesting that that there are. Um, Everywhere in this case, there are key uh, players who happen to be women. Uh, the, uh -huh. the attorney general, the caseworker, uh, the lead prosecutor, the lead reporter, Sarah Gannam. Uh, without the, yeah. the, the, the people who are driving this story are women. And, yeah. I, and it is my opinion that a woman cannot fully understand the... Uh, inherently absurd nature of an allegation of a heterosexual teenage healthy boy 
being sexually molested by an older male over a continuous period of time without ever pushing or fighting back, without telling anybody, and, in, and acting like that person is their friend. To a woman, I, I've always believed that they are, they are thinking of this as a, a relationship between an older man and a teenage girl. Uh, which to me could be much different and 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 have much different elements of manipulation and and where it would be far more viable for a perpetrator to pull this off. And I've always found it very interesting that the men in this case, the two prosecutors, Frank Fina and Joe McGettigan, were going to enormous lengths to drive the ages of the accusers as low as they possibly could. Because yeah. I think as men, they knew post-puberty, this case makes no damn sense. That's interesting. What, what do well, you make of that? Let me just say, <laughs> for the record, I wouldn't say this about all women. I mean, Beth Loftus is a woman, you know, Carol Tavers is a woman. There are some great women out there who understand the nature of these cases. But I do think that the feminist movement of the 80s and 90s had a kind of hangover to it, which did enter into this case. And by the way, you mentioned Elizabeth Loftus. Uh, Elizabeth yeah. Loftus is Dr. Loftus, who's been on this uh, podcast a couple times. Uh, she's probably the world's foremost expert on memory. She is a, 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 a very strong um, pro, a, a, a opponent of the concept of repressed memory therapy. And she has actually testified on behalf of Jerry Sandusky in his appeal right. hearing. Uh, and it, it's my impression, and again, I'm not in this world, but I'm, I'm hearing from different, from different people, and I think you're in this world, uh, that largely because of her and Mark, that there is a community of people within uh, the, I guess you would call it the scientific community, that have really uh, become very convinced of Jerry Sandusky's innocence. Is that accurate? Um, yeah, it's accurate to some extent. I think that the, the word needs to spread a, a lot farther. Um, you know, I'm in touch with the people at the False Memory Syndrome Foundation in Philadelphia, which, by the way, is going to disband very soon, uh, just because its mission has been accomplished. And they're they're sympathetic too, but they're not pushing it as some issue of their own. And you know, I think in general, we're at a point with this case where we still don't have a critical mass of people who understand the case. The information is all out there. In fact, the information is all there on your website. That's all anybody would ever need to look at. But what we're lacking is the connection with the mainstream, with the big magazines, with the big TV stations. And it just hasn't happened yet. Well, let's talk about um, your your efforts to try to correct that because I think yeah, okay. I think because I think that's emblematic of why that hasn't happened and is highly unlikely okay. to ever well, let happen. Let me tell you. Let me tell you about the the Gladwell connection. Carol Tavers is a friend of mine. Well, look, can I just set this up a little bit better for, for people? Yeah, she wrote a review for the Wall Street Journal of Malcolm Gladwell's new book, Talking to Strangers, which has a very broad and bland thesis about how. If we trust people, we'll continue to trust them, even when they do bad things, and vice versa. And he has a chapter on Sandusky called The Boy in the Shower. As you well know, uh, Gladwell consulted you and Mark Pendergrast 
for most of the information, practically all the information in that chapter. In other words, he's consulting two people who believe that Sandusky is innocent. Um, in the chapter, Gladwell tries to defend Graham Spanier, which is something very easy to do. It's really, it's really too easy. It's kind of a cop-out. Um, he says that uh, Spanier behaved the way human nature would dictate in continuing to trust a man who had a fine reputation, Sandusky, even when he was accused of horrible things. So let's all forgive Graham, Sp- Graham Spanier. That's an extremely easy argument, and it's not even an interesting argument. You could agree with it in, in two minutes. But in order to talk about Spanier, Gladwell has to talk about Sandusky, and then he has to inform himself about the case, which he does at your hands and Pendergrass. And what gradually comes over Malcolm Gladwell is the fact that the case simply doesn't add up. Now, can you write a bestseller in America saying, oh, I think Jerry Sandusky might be innocent? You absolutely cannot be done. And you can read between the lines of Gladwell's chapter and see a kind of horror there, like, what am I doing? Am I going too far? And so he keeps throwing up his hands and saying, this case is a mystery. It's a rabbit hole. It's murky. Nobody can understand it. It's so deep. <laughs> <laughs> and this is, this is all absolute bullshit because Gladwell is a very smart man who has made a career out of thinking outside the box, not pausing halfway between solving a problem and saying, throwing up his hands and saying, gee, this is a mystery. Uh, I can't get anywhere near this mystery. It's quite obvious that he has confronted the evidence for Sandusky's innocence, and he can't say anything against it. So what he does is to just fudge it. And in order to figure out what his views really are, you have to go to the end notes of the book, and there you find the references to you yourself and Pendergrass. And and that's where he says, and this this is the, the title of my article, he says, What do I think? I have no idea. And and it's so obvious that a man like Gladwell is going to have ideas. He's going to have them about something that he's that he's read up on, uh, but he he can't afford to to allow his readers to see that. So okay, Carol was writing a review for the Wall Street Journal about this book. She consulted me about it, and she wanted to write a par- she wanted to write about sandusky but you have a word limit for the wall street journal she could only finally include one paragraph about sandusky but it was a very explosive paragraph because what she said was that um gladwell is waffling on the question of repressed memory he knows better this is not a very controversial theory as gladwell says it's a bunkers theory and so she chastises him in the last paragraph of her review for that. Well, while I was talking to Carol about all this, I realized that we have here a potential opportunity of great importance. Gladwell writes nothing but bestsellers. This book was going to be a bestseller. It has turned out to be one. It was number one for the last two weeks on the New York Times book review. It was number three this week. In my local paper, it's still number one. That means 
that hundreds of thousands of people are reading about Sandusky, and they're kind of scratching their heads and saying, you know, this chapter isn't as clear as Gladwell usually is. What What's happened to him? <laughs> and, and they're worried about it. So what I said was, okay, here's an opportunity for me to explain to as many people as I can what is actually on Gladwell's mind. Okay, well, well, hold on a second. The murkiness of this chapter. Okay, okay. I want to stop you there for a second, Fred. So just to, to clarify, because there was that uh, review in the Wall Street Journal by uh, yeah. Carol uh, Tavris, who, right. and, and I was stunned by it, because, it, you know, if you read between the lines of Carol's review, she's basically saying in the Wall Street Journal that Jerry Sandusky is innocent and that, that Malcolm Gladwell didn't have the guts to say it. I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically her, what her premise. And, right. I, and I was stunned by that, because that's by far the most dramatic statement ever made about this case in the mainstream news media, uh, you know, certainly the Wall Street Journal uh, of that level of, of right. news media. And I had never heard of Carol. And so what you're basically saying is, <laughs> and Carol, I think, uh, in my communication with her has backed this up, that essentially uh, because she knows you and because you had educated her as to what really happened in this case, that you are the reason why she put that in, in the Wall Street Journal review. Is that accurate? Uh, I, won't, I won't deny it. Okay, you won't deny it. Okay, so okay, so now let's get to your your efforts. Now you say this is a great opportunity for you to write something explaining what Gladwell really meant, and yeah. uh, and so you uh, you decide that you're going to write a an article about this, an extensive article about this. You even sent it to me. Uh, I thought it was outstanding. It's incredibly well-researched and, and right to the point, and you make the case that Gladwell really isn't saying what he believes. He truly, it's clear he believes that Sandusky is innocent, at least in the legal sense, if not in the literal sense. And, um, and you uh, tell me you're going to go get this uh, published, and, uh, and, what did I, and what did I tell you was going to happen? Yeah, you said nobody will print it. And uh, when did it end up happening? Well, okay, because I think that Gladwell's book has a rather short shelf life, uh, I did not want to submit this to a print magazine and have them go over it for six months and maybe print it and maybe not. I wanted to get it on the Internet. But, of course, there are plenty of print magazines that have an Internet presence also. So I sent it out to the websites of lots and lots of very respectable magazines, and I sent it out to um, online magazines, uh, altogether, I guess, about a dozen. Everybody said no. There was one magazine that took the piece seriously, and I had a very nice set of uh, email exchanges with an editor uh, who actually made, made good suggestions for a revision of the piece, and uh, he was not able to persuade his colleagues because, well, he didn't say why, but I, it's obvious that the word Sandusky is simply poison. It's just poison. Uh, one of the editors said to me, the name Sandusky is radioactive. Um, and I think that's true. It's still true. It's amazing, but true. It seems to me that Gladwell's book ought to change that situation, but it has not changed it yet. So I was constrained to publish the thing myself on uh, Medium, and that's where it can be found. It's, um, 
It's called uh, What Do I Think? I Have No Idea, uh, Jerry Sandusky and the Gladwell Effect. And I'll, and, and I'll link that. It's not yet, but I will link this up uh, very shortly yeah. at, at FramingPaterno.com along with this interview so that people can, can find it there. Now, Fred, have you ever had a situation where you uh, felt really strongly about a subject, you wrote about it, and could not find anyone to publish it? Has that ever happened to you before? No. The first thing I published was in 1957, and I've had no difficulty publishing anything ever since then. So this, this is, is the first. This is the first time. This is the first time. Which, which, yep. by the way, um, you know, there's only two scenarios. There's only two scenarios here. One is uh, you and I are completely batshit crazy uh, to the point where uh, no no one wants to take us seriously, or or more far more likely, uh, this is the the uh, this is the situation where. Our case is actually proven by the fact that no one will publish it because it's only in that environment where the injustice that we're alleging could ever happen in the first place, right? Yeah. Because yeah. It, because if there was not this this brick wall of media censorship on this case, then there, there, this this level of injustice could not happen. And the reason why this brick wall of of censorship is happening is because everybody in the media is totally invested in the narrative and everyone is afraid terrified of deconstructing that narrative because everyone else in the media will attack them for having the audacity to do so do you do you agree with that i do you know i haven't given up completely i mean just this morning i was typing out some letters to some magazines that that pride themselves on being kind of contrarian. And what I said to them was, if you go to John Ziegler's website and look at the item on Newsweek, you will see a story that you yourself could summarize. It wouldn't even cost you a nickel's worth of research. It's all been done, and it would be the most explosive story in in but 21st it's, century right, but you're, justice. But, but Fred, you're 100% right, 1,000% right. But uh, you're not understanding fully, I don't think, uh, the, the modern news media. Uh, there's, yeah. no, there's no incentive today to tell that story because the risk uh, is greater than the reward. Uh, I mean, there, there is no reward uh, in this, you're telling, uh, and I always use this analogy because it's the one everyone can understand, you're telling five-year-olds there's no Santa Claus, okay? So yeah. there, there's no there's no currency in that. And, and this is, Excuse me, this is why I think the Gladwell book is important. Because now you have, you don't have people from, from the audience of, of the New Yorker, well, you do have the New Yorker, but say the New York Review of Books, you have middle-class Americans who love Malcolm Gladwell's bestsellers, they are coming across this evidence for the first time. It ought to be a foot in the door somewhere. Yeah, it, it should be. be. It should be. And I think Malcolm thought that it would. See, here's my my uh, theory, okay? My, my theory, having dealt with Malcolm fairly extensively on this, is that um, Malcolm realizes he could not come out in favor of Sandusky's right. innocence. He's got too much to lose. 
Um, but he was essentially uh, sending what he uh, perceives as a bat signal to the rest of the the, the media. Hey, uh, right. there's a story here. Uh, you might want to check it out, mor- right. morons. Um, uh, and, and, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I think that would have worked. Uh, it's not going to work today, especially post Me Too. Um, uh-huh. Malcolm Gladwell is not, uh, I don't, he's not big enough. Uh, it's a big deal, but it's, it, and it should be enough in a rational world. It should be enough to at least open the door. Um, yeah. but, but I gotta tell you just in this past weekend, um, I, I got involved, um, in this spat over Elizabeth Warren, having nothing to do with the Sandusky sex abuse, whatever. I, I uh-huh. thought some, something that she said in the the town hall on CNN was was detrimental to her potential uh, election against Trump, right? And yeah, so, I saw that. And, okay, and so so I'm making an issue about this, and on Twitter, I'm having major media figures, major media figures, all they're doing to do, to combat me and to put me down is guess what? I'm a Sandusky truther. That's what I oh, am. Really? That's uh, that, and that's all they have to do. They tweet Sandusky truther thinks Warren, uh, you know, wow. screwed up here. And these are major media figures, uh, yeah. uh, journalists supposedly, even some of them. And yeah. and so uh, and now, of course, I now respond with the Malcolm Gladwell link, uh, right. um, which helps shut them down a little bit. Um, right. but, but it's not a, uh, it's not a magic bullet. It should be a magic bullet, uh, but it's not. And, yeah. um, and I, I don't know that there ever could be a magic bullet, uh, in this case, because we're not in an environment where anybody is incentivized to, uh-huh. to take this on. And, 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 and you have another episode that is further proof of this. I mean, you, your original, article about Mark Pendergrass's book was online in Skeptic Magazine. Skeptic right. Magazine. Right. And it was outstanding. And we, I, I interviewed the, the publisher of uh, Skeptic Magazine about it at the time. And I was shocked and, and pleased that they published it. And then what happened after it was online? Tell us what happened then. Well, it was presumed that the piece would become an article in the print magazine. I revised it uh, to bring it up to date on on Sandusky's situation in prison, which had improved. Um, And then I kind of lost touch with the magazine, and it didn't come out, and it didn't come out. So finally I inquired, and I found that the piece had been killed. I hadn't been told about it. The piece had been killed because a whole lot of people complained, including the trustees of the magazine, and it would, it had become a hot potato. This is so, Skeptic Magazine. You can't, yeah, I can't disagree with you. <laughs> skeptic. John, I will say this. Your pessimism is very convincing, but you are still 100% committed to doing everything you can and no, in my not really. Way, <laughs> in my modest way, I am too, because something could happen. You just can't give up. All right. Well, for the record, I'm no longer 100 percent uh, committed. I'm I'm now down at about 20, 30 percent committed. Well, uh, um, uh, 20 20 percent of you <laughs> still sounds pretty powerful. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, Fred. Uh, I, I I do honestly, because you you you've been amazing. Um, you know, one of the things I got to ask, uh, in fact, I've even had people uh, on Twitter uh, 
suggest that I should ask you this because your uh, existence in this case actually defeats one of my uh, one of my pet theories. And one of my pet theories is that um, uh, old white men who have been successful in life, uh, once they become old men, totally lose their balls. Because uh, I've seen this in my private life, in the public life. I think we're seeing it with people around Donald Trump. Uh, you know, people that used to have big balls, uh, they're completely wussified. Uh, you're 86 yeah. years old. Uh, yeah. Why do you still have your balls intact? <laughs> Let's not be too literal about it at 86. <laughs> Figuratively, figuratively, yeah. Fred, Fred, okay. Fred, Fred. Why do you still have your figurative balls intact? All right, uh, it's because I am a contrarian person, and I like to uh, oppose illusions. And I think I have a sense of outrage. Um, I, I don't like injustice, and. At this point, certainly, I have nothing to lose. I'm not planning to write any more books. Um, it's actually pretty energizing for me to involve myself in a case that still matters, because when you're in your 80s, the main problem with life is that nobody cares what you do. Wow. Okay. Uh, now that's a whole other story for another day. Um, look, you, you sounds like you've got a hell of a lot more life in you uh, at eighty six. <laughs> so you please make sure you take care of yourself, would you, Fred? Because I'm, <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm being serious because because we need you around. Uh, you know, I'm I'm amazed that Jerry Sandusky is still alive in prison, but uh, you know, as long as people like you are still around and you're still fighting, I'll, I'll keep caring. So we'll make that deal. Okay. How about that? How about that? We'll make that deal as long as you're still alive. Uh, I'll keep caring. How about that? All right. That is a good deal. <laughs> Fred, thanks so much for what you've done in this, uh, and uh, please keep in touch, will you? Okay, and, and, and I can't tell you how grateful I am for what you've done. You've been the main guy. Thanks, Fred. Now, as I mentioned at the very top of the podcast, I got a, um, a pretty uh, unusual phone call this morning, although not nearly as unusual as uh, you might think. I mean, my wife uh, will tell you that uh, we get some of the strangest phone calls at our house. I mean, back from the days of Sarah Palin uh, calling to, uh, you know, to uh, Alfred Beersley, the guy who got robbed by O.J. Simpson in Las Vegas, calling me a hundred times the day after that happened. Uh, uh, Reno Sukosh, the head coach at uh, Steubenville High School, Big Red, when he's embroiled in the midst of that uh, Steubenville rape case uh, controversy. Uh, Jerry Sandusky uh, calling from prison. Uh, you know, anybody basically who's in trouble <laughs> is likely to call the Ziegler House at some point. And this week, uh, Matt Lauer was back in the news because... Uh, he was accused, or, or is about to be accused, in a brand new book by Ronan Farrow of having raped an NBC producer. And uh, you may recall that um, I have written in the past defending Matt Lauer, that my basic take on Matt Lauer's firing was that he was a scalp uh, that was a, uh, the subject of a uh, political situation involving NBC and Ronan Farrow and Harvey Weinstein and the fact that Lauer was a uh, an aging white male with a bloated contract that was easy to get rid of and that uh, NBC had an incentive to do so uh, because they had killed the Ronan Farrow Harvey Weinstein story Me Too had exploded and now they needed 
uh, someone to get rid of to show that they were on board with the whole Me Too thing. And I never believed that there was any uh, substantive or credible allegation uh, of any sort of sexual assault by Matt Lauer, that he was effectively fired because he did not tell NBC, as was technically required in his contract, that he was having an affair with a colleague, that he was supposed to notify them, which of course is ludicrous, right? I mean, in the real world, pre-Me Too, Matt Lauer is not going to say to his bosses, by the way, while I'm in the at the Olympics in Sochi, uh, I had sex with a producer who does not work for me directly, but you know, obviously he's a very powerful person at NBC at the time. And uh, I, I'm not going to tell my bosses that I'm cheating on my wife with an NBC producer. One, because that's going to leak out and, <laughs> and that's going to not be good for my marriage. Two, I'm Matt freaking Lauer and uh, you know, I've done this in the past and no one's said anything about it. I'm not defending it. I'm just telling you what the situation is. And that he got fired on a technicality uh, because he was a, a political target. That was my view of this. And that was based not just on my reading of the situation, but also having done three high-profile interviews with Matt Lauer on the Today Show over several years. I'd gotten to know him a little bit and in some pretty significant situations, by the way. I mean, I'm not going to pretend that, that Matt and I are, are buddies, but we spent a fairly good amount of time together. And more importantly than that, I'm a big believer that when you're in a foxhole with somebody, even when they're the enemy, you learn about somebody fast. And if I, by the way, if I have a talent, I don't have much talent, but if there is one talent I have is I find out about people really fast. If you spend any time with John Ziegler, you're probably going to be in a situation that reveals who you really are, right? So there is, it is not possible to have extensive interaction in a foxhole with John Ziegler without John Ziegler finding out what your essence is. And I would suggest that I have a sense, not that this has anything to do with whether there was a rape uh, that was uh, involving Matt Lauer, but I feel like considering the fairly short amount of time we've spent together, I know Matt Lauer pretty darn well. And I know people around Matt Lauer uh, pretty darn well. And when you've gone against somebody on national television three different times in high-profile interviews with high stakes involved, each one of them, you get to know each other pretty darn well. All right? So I felt very confident both in my interaction with Lauer as well as my understanding of the situation and the politics involved, that I was on solid ground defending Matt Lauer against allegations that somehow he was a sexual abuser. So then this week, all of a sudden, this another bombshell comes out, and we find out the name of the producer that he had an affair with in Sochi during the 2014 Olympics. Um, but we also find out something new that she told Ronan Farrow that she had been raped. And this, of course, is a huge story because that's all the media needs is, is a headline. Matt Lauer accused of rape by former NBC producer. And I'm like, okay, um, that's interesting. I'm, my gut reaction is, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense because, first of all, there's been no criminal charge. There's been no civil complaint, no, no lawsuit. 
there was no indication at the time, one, that this happened or that was, was being alleged to have happened. And also, if you remember correctly, at the time Matt Lauer was fired, his female colleagues, while they had to tow the NBC line, were also fairly supportive, even on air, of Matt Lauer, who they referred to as a friend, that they were shocked by this. And it was my understanding, and La and and Ronan Farrow even says this apparently in the book, which is very contradictory, I believe, to the ultimate allegation, is that somehow this was an open secret at NBC. Well, wait a minute, hold on a second. If there was a open secret of a rape allegation against Matt Lauer, his colleagues, his female super PC post Me Too colleagues, are not going to be anywhere remotely supportive of the guy, especially after he gets fired. They're going to throw him under the bus as far as they can, and they're going to say, well, we knew this. This is, thank God this finally happened. This monster has finally uh, uh, been, you know, been uh, taken away from us. We no longer have to worry about him. That's going to be their, their response, but that was not the response. So before I even knew the details, I'm like, really? Come on. Wait a minute. This makes no sense. So then I read the details, and the details of this uh, particular allegation in a rational world is just flat out ridiculous. Okay, here here's the allegation. So the woman says that while in Sochi during the 2014 Olympics, that she gets totally drunk. I think she's had six shots of uh, vodka or something like that. Uh, by the way, total aside. What the hell's going on at the Olympics where everyone at NBC is getting just silly drunk in the middle of work? I mean, the Olympics is supposed to be an incredibly intensive period of work time. Uh, I mean, and by the way, if you may recall, Matt Lauer had to fill in for Bob Costas during that Olympics because Bob Costas got the, the, the pink eye thing. Remember that? pretty sure that was the Olympics. I'm almost positive that was. So so what the hell is Lauer doing with this? the time to be doing this, as well as all these NBC producers going around getting drunk and screwing? But okay, I digress. So, so her story is that they've never had any kind of sexual interaction before, but she gets totally drunk. Somehow Lauer manipulates her into his room, which, okay, uh, it's Matt Lauer. Uh, his reputation is well known. Uh, you're drunk and you're going to his room, I think, twice. Uh, uh, okay, I'm sorry. Uh, you're not a little girl. You're a professional who is, uh, you know, an NBC producer. Uh, you know the score that doesn't in any way, shape, or form uh, remotely, if this was in a situation of rape, that does not in any way, shape, or form whatsoever uh, validate or mitigate or substantiate uh, any kind of rape. I want to make that very, very clear. Uh, what I'm trying to figure out is, did a rape really occur? So her story is that, uh, that, that Matt Lauer, quote unquote, raped her anally in their first encounter. And this was horrible. And she suffered injuries because of this. And she had told him that she didn't want to have anal sex. And, uh, and so therefore, she um, she's feeling terrible about this. So what happens next? Does she, she go to uh, some sort of authority? Does she go to her boss? Does she uh, make some sort of complaint, either criminally or within NBC against Lauer? No. Instead, she proceeds to engage in an extended affair with Matt Lauer. 
an extended affair with Matt Lauer, which she tells Ronan Farrow is consensual. Now, she also refers to it as transactional. And I'm like, what? What, 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 what does that mean, transactional? So you're in, you admit to an extended consensual affair once they get back to the United States, which apparently, according to Lauer, there's evidence that she facilitated and and promoted and 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 pursued. So you, you're you're admitting a consensual affair, but it's transactional. Now, in a pre Me Too world where we're allowed to actually scrutinize these things rationally, the word transactional should set off alarm bells, right? Alarm bells, because what you're saying is you didn't really like him. You were you were essentially having sex with him for a purpose other than you know physical uh, enjoyment or emotional attachment. So what would be your purpose then? What's the transaction? That sounds an awful lot like you're having sex with somebody for an actual, uh, you know, whether it's a promotion or whatever. I don't know what. I, someone should at least be asking that question. What? So what's the transaction? And if you're willing to have sex in a transactional fashion, doesn't that raise enormous questions about your own credibility? Because if you're willing to have sex in a transactional situation, what are you not willing to do in a transactional situation? Like, for instance, talking to Ronan Farrow. And then there's the way she phrases the allegation of rape, which to me, wow, my my BS detector was uh, going off uh, all, all over the place because I'm a big believer that people can easily be manipulated in this realm. And Ronan Farrow is someone who is totally invested, invested in the Me Too movement. He helped create it with the Harvey Weinstein story. So he wants everybody to be the victim of a sexual assault. And speaking to uh, this woman is not newsworthy. I mean, somewhat newsworthy that she had an affair with uh, Matt Lauer, and that's what ended up facilitating him getting fired. But What's really newsworthy is if there's a rape. And she says to him, it was rape in the sense that we had anal sex after I told him I didn't want to have anal sex. It was rape in the sense that I was too drunk to give consent. Now, when I hear, read that, I'm like, okay. In the sense that sounds like she's reaching She's trying to come up with a way for this to be able to be perceived as a rape because that's what Ronan Farrow, the, the man she's speaking to, wants. Farrow wants this to be an allegation of rape. Again, no criminal complaint, no civil complaint. And let's talk in the real world. Can we talk in the real world for a moment here? First of all, when two people get together for the first time sexually and, and they're drunk off their ass, right off the bat, the idea that, uh, that that communication is clear <laughs> is is absurd. It's absurd. So, and I'm will, I am more than willing to give uh, a woman any benefit of the doubt. Okay, uh, but there's also this realm of confusion, drunk first sexual experience confusion, 
And according to Lauer, yeah, they had anal sex, but they also had uh, other forms of sex before that. And I got to tell you, as someone who has never had anal sex in my life, the idea that in your first sexual encounter with a woman, you're going to uh, anally rape her is just, uh, that's just beyond my comprehension. I mean, I mean, I don't even know. I don't even know how to wrap your brain around that. I mean, that, that's just not something, unless you are a, a, a horrendous serial rapist who gets off on that, which there's no evidence because this is the only allegation we have against Matt Lauer of this type, uh, then unless that's who you are, then that just doesn't ring true. That sounds like a story that has been rationalized in retrospect. Now, is it possible that she regretted that, that she had injuries or that she felt horrible about it, or boy, I really didn't want that. Sure, that certainly seems possible. But when you engage in a long-term sexual affair with that person afterwards, I'm sorry. It, it, that it, Claiming rape after that, after they've been fired, after they no longer have any power, after their credibility has been shot, after the media is more than willing to believe anything about them, that's not credible on its face unless you have some real evidence. Did you tell anyone about this at the time? And as far as the book hasn't come out yet, but as far as I can tell, there's no evidence of that. And again, I go back to this idea that Farrow is putting out there that this was an open secret. Well, this is a trick that the media uses all the time. And I've seen this in other cases, including in the Penn State uh, Paterno-Sandusky case, where, you know, in the Penn State case, they say, well, Paterno was told by McQuarrie about this horrible rape in a shower. No, 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 no. He was told, but that's not what he was told. You're doing a bait and switch here. The bait is he was told. Well, told what? He's told about horseplay in a shower in a three-minute conversation that was more than likely about a job, not about a rape. Well, now you're switching it 10 years later to McQuarrie's new story. Well, this is similar. To the extent that there was a story about Matt Lauer and this woman going around at NBC, which, by the way, I believe, based upon other people I've spoken to, it wasn't about a rape. It was about I had an affair with Matt Lauer. This woman around went around telling people, yeah, I had an affair with Matt Lauer, which is perfectly logical. I mean, well, that, that, I, any human being would probably do that under similar circumstances. And she continued to have an affair with Matt Lauer because she either liked it or thought she was going to get something out of it or both. And so I hate this subject. I, I know it doesn't seem like it because we talk about it all the freaking time on the World Corner Zig podcast. I hate it. I I dread it. When, when, when I was thinking about whether or not to write this, I actually went to my editor. I said, I don't want to write th about this, but I feel compelled to write about it because I'm the only one that's going to write about this fairly. And they're like, you know, you should go for it. And I hate it because you get attacked and you get called names. And, you know, it, it, there's just nothing good that comes out of it. Nothing. I can't stand it. But I can't stand more that we're now living in a world where someone can make an allegation against a public person with no evidence whatsoever and destroy them. And that's what it felt like it was happening here. So I wrote a column for Mediate. And, you know, frankly, because of the nature of the subject, 
I'm not able to, to give my full opinions like I can here on the podcast, partially because of space, uh, but also there's just so much nuance involved and people are so sensitive. But I wrote a column that I felt okay about. It defended Lauer, but was certainly very much open to the idea that he had done something wrong here. I also even said that he probably should have been fired because it was obvious that he was using his position at NBC uh, to help romance women who were working either at NBC or within the business, and that's inappropriate. Uh, it was it was accepted before Me Too, but I can understand under those circumstances why you might justify a firing of Lauer. I still believe that it was mostly politically motivated for all the reasons I've already stated, but it was a very fair article. It was not all pro-Lauer at all. And this was after speaking to someone very close to Lauer, who frankly it was not as supportive of Lauer as they had once been. So, you know, I'm hardly in the, uh, you know, Matt Lauer is, uh, is totally innocent and that, uh, you know, he's an angel and, and uh, this is all totally absurd category. My concern is I no longer trust Ronan Farrow, uh, especially post Brett Kavanaugh. I mean, I think Brett Kavanaugh exposed uh, that story, exposed Ronan Farrow as, as largely a fraud. And the media has just totally latched onto him as some sort of a journalistic god, and he's not. He's invested in this topic. And the idea that he got a rape allegation out of this Matt Lauer accuser is a further indication of that. Now, interestingly, the New York Post picked up my Mediate column, which is the second time this has happened in the last couple of weeks. I find this very odd. I mean, I was shocked. When New York Post said they wanted to pick up the Mediate column, I'm like, Really? That's very strange. I, and I said to them, so you're clearly going to edit the hell out of this. Could you please send me the edits before they you publish? And they're like, oh, no, no, we're going to run this exactly as is. And I'm like, there is no chance they are running this exactly as is. If only because I reference in there my interview with, uh, with Matt Lauer alongside Dottie Sandusky from the Sandusky home in 2014, where I, I pulled off a miracle of all miracles. I got Matt frickin' Lauer to come to State College, Pennsylvania, to interview Dottie Sandusky and me from her home for an hour. That was a frickin' miracle that I did this. Uh, and I referenced this in the article in a way that makes people read it going, wow, Jerry Sandusky might be innocent. I'm like, there's no way they're leaving that in there. So sure enough, and I even told my editor at Mediate, they are not running this whole thing. And sure enough, uh, that's exactly what happened. I got an email like an hour later. Well, actually, uh, this is a little longer than we thought it was. We're going we're, we're gonna to have to edit some of this. Uh, can you take a look at what we've put, put out there or, you know, for your approval? And frankly, not all of it is what I, there were some things in there that I didn't uh, even write or fully agree with, but I was like, okay, fine. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's okay. It's, I'm all right with it. I'm not going to object to it. Uh, and so it got put in the New York Post. Now, uh, it's interesting because one of the reasons why uh, I was happy to see it in the New York Post is that I thought there was a pretty good chance that Matt Lauer would see it. He lives in New York, and well, I'm sure he doesn't read everything. Uh, in fact, he probably reads hardly anything. That there was a very good chance that people around him, at the very least, would see this. And like I said, I'm still in touch with people that were close to him back when he was at NBC. So I was not shocked at all, although I, you know, I should have been maybe, uh, when Matt Lauer called my cell phone today. Now we've talked in the past about. 
uh, interviews we were going to do, but we've not spoken since then. And I'm not going to tell you the nature of the conversation, uh, except the fact that it was a long and very um, open conversation. And, um, and my beliefs about this story have only been uh, enhanced <laughs> uh, based upon my conversation uh, with Matt Lauer. And I'm just going to leave it at that. I don't know whether or not I'll have further communication with him or not. I probably will have some sort of further communication. Um, and hopefully at some point I can be more open about uh, my conversation with him. But I just continue to get this overwhelming sense that we are living in incredibly dangerous times, whether it's uh, Matt Lauer or Michael Jackson or Brett Kavanaugh or Joe Paterno and Jerry Sandusky or Al Franken, uh, that we are living in a realm and an era where uh, people are getting railroaded. Uh, that doesn't mean they're all totally innocent, uh, but some of them are. But uh, the media is no longer to be trusted on how they cover any of these stories. And Ronan Farrow is not to be trusted in how he covers this particular uh, realm of stories because he is totally invested in a narrative that I don't believe has been proven and doesn't make any damn sense. So hopefully I'll have uh, the ability to be more open about that conversation at a later date, and I'm pretty sure I'll write again at some point about the Lauer story because obviously the book hasn't even come out yet. So there's still going to be uh, news that is related to this, and this storm is, is not yet over. In fact, in some ways, it might just be beginning. Speaking of Michael Jackson, I know the Michael Jackson fans are always looking for an update. Uh, this is actually a good one. Um, the most interesting thing that happened on the, the leaving Neverland uh, situation is that you may recall that my daughter Grace, remember Grace Ziegler? Is Trump a bad guy or a good guy? Uh, you know, she did a video after leaving Neverland had won the Emmy for Most Outstanding Documentary. And I asked her to uh, do a quick video where she mocks leaving Neverland for having won an Emmy for the worst acting that the the uh, safe chuck and robson families had actually won an emmy for for worst acting and she did a video using the emmy that i won back in 2002 uh, in philadelphia uh, to do the video and she did a really good job with the video and it's i think it's been viewed like 51,000 times on twitter and so somebody and i don't think we do we have that clip on there or not i can't tell if we do have the clip on my board or not Actually, we do have the, the uh, audio of that here. Just to give you a sense, this was Grace Ziegler with her uh, Leaving Neverland uh, uh, faux Emmy presentation. Hello, everyone. I'm Grace Ziegler. I want to make a message. The Emmy goes to the worst acting, the Robson and Safechuck families. <laughs> and she did a really good job. It only took her two takes. In fact, the first take might have been a little bit better, but she didn't use your name, so I used the second take. People really liked it, and there was a Michael Jackson fan who asked me via Twitter whether or not they could send Grace something as a reward for her video. So they did. They sent her, and they were very nice about it because they even put in something for my two-year-old daughter, Diana. They sent these uh, vintage 1980s Michael Jackson Barbie dolls along with uh, a CD of his greatest hits and a DVD of, uh, uh, of his, all of his greatest videos. And, 
you know, we, we've taught Grace who Michael Jackson is, partially because of my involvement in this, but her only other knowledge of him was that last year, one of our summer uh, concert series events in our little town in, in Southern California that we do about five or six concerts that are free in the park, last year one of them was a Michael Jackson impersonator. And the reason why the Michael Jackson impersonator uh, uh, was so memorable was not really because of the Michael Jackson impersonator, but because <laughs> the Michael Jackson impersonator had a backup dancer that clearly had done some work in a strip club. <laughs> and she was quite talented, but also quite shocking to our little town in uh, Southern California that's, you know, not exactly used to this kind of thing. So it raised a lot of eyebrows, <laughs> the the backup singer and her dance moves and her outfit. So, um, so that was Grace's knowledge of Michael Jackson to this point. But now, and I didn't know how she was going to react to the package. I mean, the kids love packages, right? I mean, there's nothing better when you're a seven-year-old or a two-year-old uh, girl when you get a, a surprise package in the mail. Uh, but they're all in. I mean, so we've had dance parties to Michael Jackson now with my, my two-year-old and my seven-year-old. Uh, they've watched the videos. They're playing with the dolls. I mean, it was fantastic. So thank you very much uh, for that. Uh, you know, Grace's first ice cream was peachy paterno ice cream sent from State College, Pennsylvania, because of people who were supporting me back then on the Joe Paterno angle of the Sandusky story. And now, um, and this is definitely her first uh, CD and, and video DVD, and first male Barbies, I think. Uh, so I, I'll give the advantage to the Michael Jackson fans. <laughs> Michael Jackson fans uh, definitely get the advantage. The peachy paternal ice cream was really good, but but uh, this one uh, had a much bigger impact on Grace and even on Diana. So so thanks for that. Uh, that'll do it for, for this edition of the uh, World According to Zig podcast, since we've already gone uh, probably longer than we should have, but hopefully you found it worthwhile. As is always the case, please remember, I only ask two things of you. Number one, please make sure you uh, share this uh, via social media, Twitter, Facebook, word of mouth, what have you. And number two, uh, if you're one of those people who sleeps and when you sleep, you use sheets, do yourself a favor and pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Until next time, our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed. Ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should, oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, one, two, one, two.